Today, our reading in Scripture is from John 3. So if you'll read with me, it's in your bulletin. John 3, verse 16 through 21. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes into the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, can I tell you, when, uh, when Chad texted me that this was the passage <laughs> that he wanted me to preach from this morning, this was my, like, my, like, look at the text. That's how I felt. <laughs> and every time I've said to someone, they've asked me, like, what are you preaching from? And I say, John three sixteen. they say, oh, like that. Because we all have, I think probably almost all of us who live in America have some memory of this first verse I just read. Like you might have memorized it when you were little, like me. Maybe it's a part of your salvation story of coming to know Jesus and connecting with Jesus. This was a verse that was used. Maybe, on the other hand, it was used in a way that was hurtful, where someone yelled it at you and told you that if you didn't believe in Jesus, you were not going to heaven, you were going to hell, and you better be afraid and get your act together, right? Maybe you've seen it on a billboard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, big red letters, but have everlasting life, bigger red letters, right? Like, we've seen that billboard. This verse is common. And John 3 where it's happening in the Bible is a verse that has a lot of things we normally use in it, like born again, saved, John 3, 16. They're used a lot in our culture. And often when they're used, they're talking about some like morally degenerate person who was like going the wrong way in life and then like was born again, found Jesus, got saved, and they're good now. They're like, okay. They're shiny, happy people, as the documentary that just came out said, right? And so that's kind of the context that we normally hear this verse in. It's also often tied to political movements. People say, I'm a born-again Christian. You, like, have a feeling about what that means, I bet, in your, in, like, from whatever you're coming from. So in order to understand John three sixteen through 21, we kind of have to go back and review a little bit. And this is where this passage has really blessed me this week, is I have been a Christian since I was five. I was really genuinely interested in Jesus as a five-year-old, and I have memorized a lot of verses, and this is one of them. And in the entirety of my life as a Christian, which granted is not that long, you know, I still have, like, memories of this verse that have nothing to do 
with the conversation that it's a part of. Who's talking? Who's saying these words? Who are they being said to? Why are they being said? And so for me, in studying this passage this week, I kind of got to take them off the billboard and put them back into the story that they come from. And it was a blessing to me. And so I would like to do that with you this morning, to go back a little ways. Um, Chad has been in John 3 for a few weeks now. And if you haven't been here, or if you're like me, and you could always use a refresher, because I forget things like immediately after they're said to me, then let's go back together and just kind of get to know this guy who's talking to Jesus in John 3. Okay? Because I think when we do that, then John 3, 16 through 21, it is life-giving instead of the ways that has, it has often been used. So first, we are introduced in John 3 to this guy named Nicodemus, right? It's a funny name. It's probably the only place you've ever heard it is the Bible. Maybe, maybe not. Nicodemus, the first thing that we learn about him is that he's a Pharisee. And when we hear the word Pharisee, often we think of a villain, right? Because we're in this context, not in that context. And the Pharisees are the bad guys of the Bible. But in reality, this guy, Nicodemus, he was a teacher who had dedicated himself to knowing the ways of God. He probably had most of the Hebrew scriptures memorized. Memorized. He knew them. He had known them for most of his life and studied the ways of God in order to know God and lead people on the pathway of God for his entire life. That's who Nicodemus was. He also was very likely, it says that he, the next part is that he's a leader of the Jews. So he was a person who had like political clout. He was a leader in his community. Like if you needed advice for something or you needed to get something done, Nicodemus was the kind of guy that you would go to. He also was very likely wealthy. He had a lot of money, and with money comes power, right? This is who Nicodemus is. And not only that, but I I genuinely believe that Nicodemus was a religious and probably very upright moral person. That he didn't only just know the Hebrew Scriptures. He wasn't just a person of power because of his position. He probably did a lot of the right things in life, right? His, like, moral compass was super tight. This is who Nicodemus is. And when we hear in our context the words born again and saved, I don't think we're we're really talking about a person like Nicodemus, right? This is not the kind of person that we look to and say, gosh, you need to be born again and saved, right? This is a different kind of person. This is a a teacher, an intelligent person, a Bible professor, a, a leader in his community, somebody who has high moral standards. And I also think that Nicodemus was likely genuinely curious about Jesus, too. So not only all of these things were true about him, but I genuinely think he was curious. And I think this because we see Nicodemus two more times in John. One, in John 7, where Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus in front of the religious leaders. He says, you should give him a chance to talk for himself when they're angry with him. And then in John 19, after Jesus dies, Nicodemus is one of the people who pays for part of the burial for Jesus and helps bury him. So something about Jesus is drawing Nicodemus 
closer. But why is this guy coming to talk to Jesus in the first place? In order to see that, I think we have to go back to John 2, the chapter right before this. What happens in John 2, I think, makes sense for why Nicodemus is talking to Jesus in John 3. In John 2, Jesus goes to the temple and he sees people being blocked from connection with God because of others who want power and money. And he gets angry. And he flips the tables in the temple. And who comes and asks him what he's doing? It's Nicodemus' people, the Pharisees. They're like, what right do you have to do all of this? Right? And then the very next story in the Bible is Nicodemus talking to Jesus. And when does Nicodemus come talk to Jesus? Does anyone remember? At night. Yes. And I think there is a reason for that. It could just be that Nicodemus was like a busy guy and had to wait till night because he had a busy day. But I think that likely part of it is that Nicodemus is a person of power, of moral standing, and he's going to see this guy who just kind of did this like nutso thing that was like a really big political statement, and he's, he doesn't want to risk his reputation, right? I always think of Nicodemus and Jesus, and this is probably totally contextually inaccurate, but like my whole life, I've had this image of Jesus and Nicodemus talking outside and their faces are like bathed in the moonlight so they can see each other, but it's still dark. And they're having this conversation together. And Nicodemus is coming to Jesus kind of for political reasons. Like what he says is, we know, meaning his, his buddies, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God because no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. He wants to have like that conversation like, hey, remember that time when you just like threw all that stuff? What's going on there? What, what, can, like, can we help each other? Like, I'm a person who has some clout. Obviously, people are listening to you. Let's have a conversation. And Jesus does not go for it. Because the point of Jesus coming, he's going to say, is not for power. And it's not for this political clout. And it's not to make people more moral. Right? It's something totally different. And so what he does is he looks into Nicodemus' soul. And he says... Truly, I tell you, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. What he's saying, and this is something that Chad has been talking about, right, is that Nicodemus, your life as it is, you need a restart. You need a do-over. Your life needs to be start again. You need to be born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. Your life needs to be reordered, as Chad has been saying. And one thing I really like, he says you must be born again. He also says you must be born of the Spirit. And at this point, Nicodemus is like, this is not the conversation that I thought I was going to have today, and I'm a little confused, I think. But I also am interested. This is catching me. Right? Because Jesus is speaking in a way that Nicodemus, I think, is not familiar with and that he needs to hear. Jesus knows this man. They're sitting in, at nighttime having a conversation. And Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. And in order to be born of the Spirit, this was last week's sermon, you need to look to me. I don't know if you remember if you were here or not last week. 
But there's a story that Jesus references in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus that's an old story about how the people of God disobeyed God and snakes came into their camp and bit people and they were going to die. And so Jesus or God says to Moses, the leader of the people, put a metal snake up on a, a stick and when people look at it, they won't die of the snake bites. That's a weird story. I just want to, like, you know, it's weird. And what's so cool about it, though, is Jesus is saying, and I always wondered, right, why did, why did Jesus reference himself as a snake, as a serpent? Like, those are like the bad guys in the first story, right? But what he's saying, Jesus is saying, is I have taken on the serpent. I have taken on the wrong and the evil, and I put it on myself. And if you look at me, you will be saved right? It's amazing and beautiful. So he is giving this information. He's giving this story to Nicodemus saying, if you want to be born again, if you want your life to be redone, which can I just say, if I was Nicodemus and I had worked really hard like that my entire life to be a morally upstanding person and to be somebody people look up to, and some young guy came and said to me, you need a do-over. You need to restart your life. I think I might be kind of insulted, right? But Jesus is saying, what you have ordered your life around, what you have looked to, it's not working. In order to be born again, in order to be born of the Spirit, you need to look to me. And Tim Mackey, who's I've referenced before up here, he's a Bible scholar that I really appreciate and have learned a lot from. And he kind of says this kind of a little bit silly analogy where he says, say you have a uh, cherry tree in your yard. And you're like, I don't really want cherries anymore. They're not working for me. The birds are getting them. I would like peaches instead. And if you, like, water that tree and you prune that tree, and next season, what's going to come from it? Yeah, cherries, right? What, it's kind of a silly analogy, but it's what Jesus is saying here is, if you just look at me, Nicodemus, if you just look at me like a teacher who can teach you things, that's what Nicodemus calls him, his teacher, If you just look at me like a teacher who can add stuff to your moral code, who can maybe give you some information about how to live a better life and, like, be a better person, you're not actually getting the point. Your life isn't actually going to be reordered and restarted in the way that you want. Just like a cherry tree that you really want to get peaches from, you're not going to because you need a new root system. You need a new source of life, a new person to look to. Nicodemus, you're not going to get it if you just try to fit me into your moral and religious system. We cannot predict or engineer being born of the Spirit. We can't make other people get this. We can't even really make ourselves get this. Right? It's a work of the Spirit, and Jesus is inviting Nicodemus into this way of life that is very new to him. And he says, this is the reality and the truth of why I'm here. And then we get John 3.16. That's where we're finding these verses. And if we take them out of the context of Jesus having this nighttime conversation with a pretty good guy, I think we miss what Jesus is trying to say. John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus about having a new kind of life. 
For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, anyone who believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. And don't forget the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Also, separating those verses, you miss a lot, I think. Right? So, as a reminder, we've kind of talked about it. But these verses, John 3.16, this verse has been taken out of the conversation with Nicodemus a lot, at least in my own life, and in uh, stories that I've heard. And it's been used to say, as I said, it's been used kind of like a fear tactic. Right? You believe, you're good, you'll go to heaven. You don't believe, then good luck, you're going to hell. And it's really future-oriented. And granted, these words, perish and eternal life, they kind of have some future understanding to them. That's a part of it, right? But I do not think, oops, I do not think that's what Jesus is talking about here with Nicodemus in its entirety. Is right? These, this verse is used to say, you pray a prayer, you believe in Jesus, you say, God, forgive me of my sins, come into my heart. You're golden, heaven-bound, right? It's like a one-time thing. When in reality, Jesus is talking about an entire life reordering and, re- and changing when you look to, to Jesus, when you are born of the Spirit and born again. And so uh, perish in this verse, it can mean to die or be destroyed. It can also mean to be lost, and I love that. Eternal life Yes, has a, a connotation for the future, that if we are connected to Jesus during our lifetime, there is a future we can hope for where we are with God and things are made right. But I love Eugene Peterson's version of talking about this. He says, instead of eternal life, whole and lasting life. Anyone who believes in him will not perish or be lost, but have whole and lasting life. It's both a future reality and a present condition. Being born again. Connecting with the words in John 3, 16 and 17. And um, the next verse, John, uh, John 3, 18, it talks about condemnation. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the third time at the end of John uh, three eighteen that the word condemned is used. And I found this to be kind of a daunting word to even think about in preparing for this message. Condemned. What does Jesus mean by that? Firstly, obviously, I want to clarify that the two out of the three times it's been used so far, it's because Jesus wants to clarify that's not why he's here, to condemn. If we look to Jesus, we are not condemned. And Jesus didn't come to condemn. I think that's very important to clarify in this passage. Uh, Also, maybe different than the way that we've heard these verses used before. There's two ways of living. One is belief looking to Jesus. Nicodemus, if you have your life reordered and oriented toward looking to me, that's belief. You are not condemned. 
But if you do not believe, you're already condemned. Do you, do you get that? There's a present tense. If you believe, you're not condemned. If you don't, you're already condemned, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. There's like a passive kind of tense. It's a way of life. When we don't believe, when we, when we are not looking to Jesus for our life, there's this sense that we are already living in this state of lostness, of being lost in the dark, is the way Jesus is going to describe it. And I kept thinking, what does this word condemn mean? I really want to understand. And, and it's so cool because he tells us in the next verse. Uh, the word in the uh, translation I gave you, it says judgment. This is the judgment in verse 19. But the word could actually be, tra- it's connected to the word condemned. So it could be, this is the condemnation. Oh, wow, he's going to tell us. I'm so glad when that happens and I don't have to just figure it out. What is the condemnation? Verse 19 says, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That first kind of it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I, I have to be honest with you. I don't really want to come up here and, and talk to you about sin and evil. It's not my favorite thing. I, I feel uncomfortable and judged by those words. Um, I'm a person who naturally is prone toward feeling guilty. I have a sense that you have likely heard these words and they have been hurtful to you or made you feel unloved instead of loved. And I feel that weight. And so as we talk about this light coming into the world, who's the light? Jesus. And us loving the darkness rather than the light, because our deeds were evil. It's an important thing to think about, but I also want us to be really careful. Right? And I also want to point out, it doesn't say we love evil. It says we love darkness. I think that's a really interesting thing, and it's something that we should hold on to. I'm going to talk to you about what I think Jesus means by this darkness. And I also want to talk to you about what I think he means by evil. And uh, one of the things that's really helped me is Barbara Brown Taylor, who I tried to quote last time. And I actually was supposed to quote Anne Lamont, um, but I get them confused all the time. But I promise, this is Barbara Brown Taylor. She wrote a book called Speaking of Sin that I think is really interesting. It's really small. And she talks about how churches have taken the language of sin and condemnation and evil out of their pulpits and out of their conversations because they're harsh and they feel yucky. And they make people feel bad about themselves. And um, there's a lot, a ton of reasons, way more than that, for the reasons that we kind of remove that language. But she says it's really important to keep it because it is in acknowledging the reality of our fallen state that we're able to really grasp the magnificence and the truth of what looking to Jesus does for us in giving us this grace and in pouring out this love on us. It's, we need to actually see and face the reality of who we are in order to get over here, right? And um, I couldn't say it any better than she could, so I'm going to talk using her words 
Um, she talks about what she thinks, what, what uh, her perspective on sin is. And uh, before, I, before I do that, I just want to say, first, human beings are remarkable creatures. We are made, all of us, every single one in the entire world that's ever lived, and no matter what they have done, has been made in the image of God. And we are remarkable. We are capable of beauty and love and goodness in ways that are just, I mean, they make you cry when you see the commercials about it, right? But I don't think we have to reach very far to recognize that that we are broken. That there is something wrong fundamentally with the human race. Even if it's hard for us to say about ourselves, I think if we look outside of ourselves, it's pretty easy (laughs) to recognize that brokenness. Right? And it's a small step from them to us to me. The reality of who we are is that, that we are lost in the darkness without Jesus. We are. And this is what Barbara Brown Taylor says about sin. And I would like you to listen to it with a mind to think instead of outside yourself, try to gently and kindly look internally as I read and just, just learn and, and think about your own, your own life and your own self. Remembering the first verse I read, which is God loves you, in which we talk him not to condemn you, but to save. So that is the context from which we talk about sin or evil or brokenness, right? Okay. So, Barbara Ron Taylor, it's kind of long. You got this. The picture of what sin is will be different for every one of you, but the experience to hunt for is one that makes part of you die. Deep down in human existence, there is an experience of being cut off from life. There is a memory of having been treated cruelly, and a little deeper, perhaps, the memory of having treated someone else cruelly as well. Deep down in human existence, there is an experience of seeing the light and turning away from it, either because it is too beautiful to behold or because it spoils the dank, familiar darkness. Deep down in human existence, there is an experience of reaching for forbidden fruit, of pushing away loving arms, of breaking something on purpose just to prove that you can. Deep down in human existence, there is an experience of doing whatever is necessary to feed and comfort the self because there is no one else to trust, no one other purpose to serve, no other God to follow. For ages and ages, this experience has been called sin. Deadly alienation from the source of all life. By some definitions, it implies a willful turning away from God. By others, it is an unavoidable feature of being human. Either way, it is a name for the experience of being cut off from air, light, sustenance, community, hope, meaning, life. It is less concerned with specific behaviors than the aftermath of those behaviors. There are a thousand ways to turn from the light, after all, with variations according to culture, century, class, gender. The point is to know the difference between light and darkness and to recognize the pull of darkness when it comes. 
We like the darkness because that's us. <laughs> and, and if I'm honest, I think there's a few reasons we like the darkness, but one of them is that it is familiar and we like serving ourselves. I do. I like being someone that people look at and appreciate and enjoy, even if it means I'm not always honest about who I am. I look to a lot of other things to find what I need. They don't work very well, but I still do it. And I like doing it because my ego is pretty uh, lioness sometimes, I've got to say. Right? One of the reasons we love the darkness is because this is us. This is me. I like it. (laughs) I can do what I want here. Another reason I think, and, and the reason that I think Jesus is using this metaphor of light and darkness, is because he's sitting with Nicodemus in the dark. Remember that? He's sitting with a man who is afraid, who doesn't want anyone to know that he's there, who thinks it might damage his reputation. And I think another reason that we like the darkness sometimes is because we're afraid. And we're ashamed. The next verse really drew my attention to that. Uh, because it says that this, verse 20, For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. Right? Again, it doesn't say we love evil. It just says we don't like the light. And those words, avoid and exposed, those are words that we use when we talk about fear and shame in our culture today. Right? When we know who we are and it's not exactly who we want to be and we have things that we've chosen, we've been damaged and we have hurt and damaged others, ourselves, our connection to God, I find it very hard to want people to know me as that. Right? I do not want to be exposed. I do not. I want to avoid the light because if people really saw who I am and what I am like, I would have less friends, probably. That's how I feel. I don't think I introduced. I talk to a lot of psychologists at work. Um, By the way, if we haven't met yet, I don't think I introduced myself really. And I'm Katie, and I am a chaplain at the VA. Um, in Asheville. And so I work with a lot of psychologists. And one of the ways that um, some of them talk about shame is that it's like mold that grows in the dark. That's what shame is. When we hide and when we kind of mask our shame and our fear, it grows. It has so much more power in our lives. And uh, this is what they've taught me, that the antidote to shame is exposure. When it is brought into the light, shared and exposed, that's where we find healing and wholeness. It's in those places. We avoid the light because we don't want to be exposed, but what we really need is that exposure, is that light, right? I have seen it time and time again at my work with veterans who have had to do things in war that they have been carrying for most of their lives and feeling ashamed about and secretive about for most of their lives. I see this a lot. 
And it is when they speak their shame, when they are truly known by others, that they actually start to heal, not only from that experience, but from body ailments, from things that are going on in their minds. It's remarkable. The antidote to shame is light, is exposure. So there's a lot of reasons that we can hide in the darkness. There's a lot of reasons I do. There's a lot of reasons Nicodemus was, too, when Jesus was talking to him in the moonlight, maybe. I think with all of these reasons in mind, it makes the next verse either feel really intense and scary or really life-giving and wonderful. The way that I've mostly seen it was the first way. Former ladder, I don't know those, sorry. This is verse 21. Read it with me. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Now, the way that I have read that in the past was if you... Live by the truth, meaning you do the right things and you know what God says and you try to follow him and you're living by the truth. That's what I think of when I think of truth. Then you're fine in the light. No problem. I'm great. Right? That's kind of how I want to be. Like, I'm going to wait till I go in the light till I have things figured out and I'm like golden and I'm fine and then I'm going to go in the light. But is that the truth that Jesus is talking about? No, it can't be because he's talking to Nicodemus who knows Every moral truth there is, right? And this conversation is for him. So what is the truth that Jesus is talking about? I think it's John 3.16. For God sent his son into the world, loved the world in this way. He sent his son into the world so that anyone who believes in him will not perish be lost in the darkness, but have whole and lasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't. But to save the world through him. That's the truth. When we know that truth, we can come into the light. When we look to Jesus to have our lives reordered because the way that we've been living isn't working, when we look to Jesus... And what we see is love. That's the only way that we can come into the light. Because if we just look at Jesus like Nicodemus was, like a teacher who can get us some things that we might need to learn, we are going to be burdened and exhausted beyond anything if that's the way we try to come into the light, if that's the way that we try to find connection with God, right? If you read Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and the teachings of Jesus, and you just try to follow them, you might, like, be able to do a little bit better at life, but you will be burdened beyond belief, right? Because the moral teachings of Jesus do not get us where we need to go. It is by looking to Jesus who can reorder and restart our life through the power of the Spirit that is going to allow us to come into this whole and lasting life that Jesus wants for us. And I believe that this is a future promise, but I also believe that this is a daily practice. 
of reshaping and restarting and reordering our lives around Jesus. And when we look to him by his spirit, that's, that's how we do that, right? That when, you, when, when I see another area where, ooh, I've been cringing in the darkness, ooh, I've been hiding, it's coming out into the light over and over and over again, right? And finding that when we look to Jesus, we are not condemned. The next part of this verse is another part, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. It's another part that I was always kind of like, oh, that sounds really stressful and a lot. Truth and works and blah, 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 you know? But works, the thing that's been really sticking with me is one of the main teachings, I think, when Jesus, of Jesus, it's not Jesus who said it, but it's in Ephesians, is, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your works so that no one can boast. It is not by works that we are saved, right? So anything good we do, it starts with this grace of Jesus, this work of Jesus to give us the grace we need to look toward him and to be reordered in his image and likeness more and more and more. Stepping into the light has nothing to do with our level of accomplishment or how perfect we feel that day, which for me changes about 18 times during the day. What is the gospel? When we look to Jesus to find our value, to find our worth, when we look to Jesus and believe that his work for us and his love covers every part of us, when, that it's him who did the work on our behalf, that the truth is that his love covers us. We can be exposed as we are and find grace. As John 1 says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all people, whole and lasting life. It is offered to you if you look to Jesus. Look to him. He loves you. We cannot walk in the way of God without looking to him, without his love and grace. Look to Jesus. As an old Methodist minister once said, you don't need a college degree to look. Let's pray. God, it is your words here that matter. These are powerful words about why you came, about who you are. And I ask, God, that they would soak into our souls. And that as we sing this um, nostalgic kind of song, that we would remember the truth in them. And that you would free us from any pain or wounds that come with them, that what remains would be the love and grace you offer for a broken people who you did not come to condemn but came to save. In your name we pray. Amen.